Welcome everyone to this new episode of the Alan and Overy Luxembourg podcast. If you have not been living under a rock for the past couple of weeks, you surely noticed that the banking sector has been on quite a roller coaster. My name is Anne-Sophie Besançon and I'm an associate within the financial services regulatory team. Joining me for this discussion is Jacques Grasse, who is a partner in our corporate team here in Luxembourg. Between the insolvency of the Silicon Valley Bank that spread to other US banks, the Swiss drama that resulted in the last-minute rescue of Credit Suisse by UBS, and the plummeting of Deutsche Bank's shares last Friday, we will shed a light on all this recent turmoil in the banking sector. Jacques, would you say that the current situation is a déjà vu of what we witnessed in 2008? Well, uh, thank you, Anne-Sophie. And uh, lawyers, we, we love precedents, but um, fortunately, in this case, I don't think that uh, 2023 is a repeat of 2008. Um, I think the situation is, is structurally different. In 2008, what we were dealing with were toxic assets that were basically on the balance sheet of all major banks worldwide. We were in an environment where regulation was far less advanced and there was a systemic risk in the system that spread, uh, you know, like a wildfire uh, across the globe. Um, what we are seeing here is not the same level of uh, toxic assets or systemic risk. It's, I would say, mainly a classic bank run that is happening. And bank runs have happened, um, you know, since banks exist. Um, the tulip crisis in Holland is an example of collective hysteria, the U.S., depression in the 30s, uh, we have had a number of these situations. And so fundamentally, Credit Suisse, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, others, there are structural deficiencies in those banks. There's a macroeconomic environment that uh, has become a little bit more difficult. And at a certain point in time, um, depositors decided at the same point in time to go and get back their money. And what governments actually did is also very different from 2008, because there has been no classic bailout, so to speak. Uh, no bank has been nationalized, overtaken. What happened in the US is mainly the government and the federal depository insurance stepping in, securing the clients, so you and me having money in the bank, securing, safeguarding the system, and, you know, as the Swiss government put it, arranging commercial deals. Now, we can discuss about the extent of those commercial arrangements, but fundamentally, structural differences with 2008 lie in those, um, in those items. Yeah, please, let's take a closer look at what happened with Credit Suisse. Um, as an M&A partner and from past experience, wouldn't such a deal normally take months to crystallize? I, I was actually wondering, how is it possible that such a complex deal was signed over a weekend? Well, it, it shows you that if needed, lawyers can work very fast. But um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, yes, it depends. But more seriously, I think there wasn't really a choice in that specific situation. So the, 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 the situation on the markets was such that on Friday, uh, uh, everyone was expecting some kind of solution. If that solution hadn't been found over that weekend, on Monday morning, there would have been a risk of insolvency for, for, for Credit Suisse. And that would, of course, have had very significant um, ramifications for Switzerland specifically, but for the global banking system generally. So a solution had to be found over the weekend. And actually, if you look at it and you put on indeed um, my, my head as an M&A lawyer, 
the fundamentals of the deal are pretty simple. It's it's a hundred percent acquisition, uh, share for share. So the, the former Credit Suisse by current still current Credit Suisse shareholders get shares in UBS. So those fundamentals are there. You can put it on a piece of paper relatively easily. The two elements that are typically the most critical in those type of discussions are one, the price, and two, risk. Now, when it comes to price, the price is extremely attractive. So it's just over three, uh, uh, three billion in terms of uh, sh share value. Um, if you compare that, even with uh, uh, Friday, um, th there's a significant uh, difference. You're talking about eight, eight billion on Friday versus three billion that actually UBS um, had, had, had not even to put on the table, but the, how it was valued. If you look back to the value of Credit Suisse market value in October, when the uh, Saudi investors put in money, it was 15 billion. So from a financial perspective, a very good deal for UBS. And the second element is uh, risk. Now, of course, there's plenty of risk in Credit Suisse, but there's very substantial state guarantees that have been put in place, liquidity access. So from a UBS perspective, you get an asset quite cheaply and you get a lot of guarantees on the risks. Well, plus they didn't really have a choice. But overall, that's, I think, the main, the main reason why it went so quickly. So you think that it's a good deal for UBS? Well, you know, history, history will tell. History will tell. Um, but if you look at it from, a, let's say, deal term sheet perspective, and if you had asked the CEO of UBS even six months ago, three months ago, this is the deal, would you do it? Well, macroeconomically, financially, yes. Now, there's one element that we need to keep in mind, which is that the deal signed. So it, is, it has not closed. Today, you still have Credit Suisse and UBS, two separate entities. That will take months. That will take months. So for that deal to close, you need to go and see every regulator worldwide where they are regulated. You need to get antitrust approval. You need uh, to, 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 to make sure the integration works properly from an IT systems, from a risk perspective, people management, so extremely complex. By the way, and the, this was also leaked in the press, there is what we call a so-called material adverse effect clause in the documentation. Now, apparently that clause was softened down a little bit, but the deal may not close if certain things don't work out the way they expect it to work out between now and closing. It's possible that the deal would fall apart in the meantime. And competition law aspect as well. Competition law, indeed, is, is also an important aspect, if only in Switzerland. Now, um, in Switzerland, of course, there is sort of almost a higher, uh, a higher national need to go ahead, which is also illustrated by the fact that the law was actually changed to accelerate the deal. So there was no shareholder yeah, vote. Yeah, the circular. And the circular and, and no shareholder vote. So um, if, 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 you, if you think about it, this is quite significant. Then there's, of course, the little bit more um, tricky item on what happened with the 81 uh, bondholders as well. Yeah, so... Uh, that's actually a very good uh, point. And as a regulatory lawyer, it's one of the elements that I found particularly interesting is the situation uh, of the 81 bondholders. Uh, would you mind quickly explaining what an 81 bond is and how such a colossal write-off came about? Right. You, you probably know more about 81 <laughs> uh, bonds than, than myself uh, as a regulatory lawyer, but f fundamentally, 81 bonds, 81 stands for additional tier one bonds. Cocoa bonds. Cocoa bonds, also, also known as cocoa bonds. Now, uh, banks, as we all know, have capital requirements. 
the highest form of capital is equity, and those bonds are those that come immediately thereafter. So people holding those bonds are at risk of losing, losing all their money. That risk is relatively high in the hierarchy of financial instruments, but it should be below the equity. So normally, if things go really badly, the people who should lose above all are the holders of shares and of common equity. Now, what happened in the Credit Suisse UBS situation is quite unique because the shareholders, well, they got over 3 billion. The 81 bondholders, they get zero. Now, you ask, how is that even possible? Is it legal? Um, well, let, let's say that on, the, on, on paper and based on the explanations that were given by, by the FINMA, uh, there were legal provisions that allowed this. So there's a, in the terms and conditions of the bonds, uh, a, a, a viability event definition, which states that if there's extraordinary government support, the bonds can be written down to zero. Yeah, and or that transform in equity. Or, that or could have been another Or, or transform in, indeed. But they chose to basically, but, you know, to put it bluntly, wipe them out uh, based on extraordinary, extraordinary government support. And that extraordinary government support itself was crystallized in uh, a, a federal ordinance by the, the Swiss government. Um, now, some people from the outside may say, hmm, that looks a little bit artificial. Maybe, but that's then something to be discussed by the courts. And as you know, and as was stated in public press releases already, those bondholders who lost 17, one seven billion, um, they have mandated also lawyers to, to try to look into this. So I, I would expect some, some backlash and some discussions uh, on, on this topic. Um, an, important, well, an interesting fact is that the European regulators, they actually issued a statement a couple of days after the fact reassuring the system, saying everything is fine, but also pointing out that in the European Union, normally this could not have happened. So normally you could not just write down those bonds to zero if you give at the same point in time something to the shareholders. So it's a very interesting legal case study. Um, and also from an economic perspective, I think people who invest in these type of bonds, they of course now need to reevaluate re um, what it means. Yeah, so they're trying to reassure investors that Switzerland is kind of an exception. Indeed. Well, let's see what the court think about that. In, in, indeed, we'll, we'll see. And well, uh, this, this will take uh, months, if not years, for us to find out. So putting aside the world and Switzerland, what does it mean for Luxembourg? Should we be worried for the stability of our banking sector? No, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be worried. Uh, we shouldn't be self-complacent either. Um, but if you look at Luxembourg as a microcosm, and of course Luxembourg is linked to the financial system, so everything which is bad for the financial system globally to some extent is at least not good for Luxembourg. But if you look at Luxembourg itself, we don't have investment banking in Luxembourg. So the banking industry in Luxembourg, it's mainly you know, retail banking, you know, private banking in the sense of private wealth management and depository banking for, for investment funds. So all of these products are not the most risky products. We are not in sort of the investment uh, type banking world. That being said, we, of course, have institutions in Luxembourg that are linked to, um, to, to, such, to such activities. Um, if only, you know, Credit Suisse will disappear. If the deal goes through Credit Suisse, as a standalone entity in Luxembourg will, uh, will disappear and we will lose another bank uh, in the terms of number of banks. Um, 
but but overall uh, there is no no need to be um, to be worried uh, there's of course one element that we need to keep in mind which is that banking is a risky industry you know banks to some extent are designed to fail you give 100 euros to your bank if you go to your bank tomorrow and everyone goes to their bank tomorrow and wants their money back it will be impossible because that money is is put to work so the system is built uh, has a certain risk built into it uh, and coming back to the initial statement there will always be bank runs but I think Luxembourg and the Luxembourg banking uh, sector is as, as safe as it gets within that setup. In a broader sense, um, what are, in your view, the looming trends uh, for the banking sector as a whole? Um, well, I would, I would mention two. Um, like in every crisis, the immediate response would be will be tougher regulation. So I would definitely expect at least a revisit of the existing regulation. Even mm -hmm. tougher. Even tougher, of course, you know, that, that's always the natural response. Uh, in the US, what does it mean? Well, uh, it will mean that what you currently see, or the regulation you currently see applying to the very big systemic banks will probably be broadened because many of those regional banks that, that are now in trouble, they're actually not subject to the same level of regulation. So one response which we should expect in the US is in that direction. And then for Europe, there's, there's a bit of a similar question as to whether the capital requirements will be further increased. Now, my personal take on that is that that may be helpful, but at the end of the day, if there's a bank run, it won't help you. Because unless you require a bank to hold for each euro, it gets a euro in, in liquid. You can't prevent you, that. You, you can't prevent that. So if you add 5 or 10% of additional capital cushion, okay, that's good, but Would it really fundamentally change the situation? Probably not. So it's a question of the of, of the business model at the end, which I think we need, and it, it has to be built into the system. So we should rather make sure that we have the instruments to react to situations like that, rather than to try to eradicate situations like that altogether, because that, that won't happen. And if you look at the response, well, we're touching, touching the table, so would, huh? uh, so far, I think we are still, we are, we are doing fine compared to 2008, but let, let's see where we end up at the end of this. And uh, maybe a second trend, which is, you know, already an existing trend, is that this is also, again, an opportunity for private capital, because what, what will happen with the assets of these banks? If you look at Silicon Valley Bank, Basically, they have an, a, a very significant loan book. You have all the big uh, private capital um, investors, the Blackstones, the Apollos, the Carlyles. They are looking at these assets. And uh, so they will basically try to cherry pick, get the best elements of the loan book and, and make money of it, out of it. Um, so at the end of the day, this is another example of how the private capital world benefits from the evolution and uh, the changes in the traditional uh, banking world. And for Luxembourg, which has sort of a lack in both worlds, in the banking world and in the private capital work, that's of course also an, an opportunity. Thank you very much for these compelling insights and thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in. Mm -hmm.